So it's hard to believe that we're closing in on the completion of our study of the book of Revelation. Um, by my count, including this sermon, we only have six left, unless we decide to drag that out another 12, 15, something like that. Um, but what, what that will mean is we will have spent 42 weeks, 42 weeks unpacking and attempting to explain or understand what the first century church would have heard one time read out loud in a letter. It doesn't mean that we're any less smart than they are, although I think we probably are. Um, and we can't say for sure that when they, when they heard this letter read through the first time, you know, they, they, they heard this, this letter read through in their church meeting, and they all went, well, of course. That makes perfect sense. That's perfectly clear now. I, I don't think that was the case. But I think what is the case, what is true, is that in our modern and enlightened understanding of this particular text, it has been so layered and piled on and deconstructed and reconstructed and decoded and recoded that it's become a challenge for us just to deal with the text and nothing but the text, which is what we've tried to do. We've tried to strip away the, the books and the movies and the, the latter-day dispensational mandate that you have to believe this timeline works this way. You have to believe this sequence of events. It could be an issue of salvation. It's not an issue of salvation. We can disagree on how we understand parts of this book. But we've attempted to look at just what the text says, rather than what we want it to say, rather than what we hope it will say. Because this book is full of present and future hope for the believer. Even if it means we're not going to be magically airlifted at some point before all the bad stuff really happens, it's still full of hope. So we hope it's been helpful and encouraging even. But it has been the case all the way through the book that it represents, the book of Revelation represents two distinct classes of people. There are the believers, those who follow Christ, those whose names are written in the book of life, and those who do not follow Christ, whose names are not written in the book of life. And it's been pretty clear, and it's becoming even clearer now that we're getting towards the end, that there are, two, there are two very different and distinct outcomes for those two classes of people as well. One outcome is encouraging and hopeful. The other is decidedly not encouraging and hopeful. And this has been portrayed, it's been, it's been described to us in various ways throughout the book thus far, especially coming into the last few, few weeks. Randy covered chapters 17 and 18 which provide pretty rich detail on the, the downfall of Babylon. It describes in detail the, 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 those who deny faith in God, those who deny trust in Jesus, and what happens to them. And although when we hear Babylon, for the most part, it conjures up for us Old Testament image of a city or a city-state, perhaps. Uh, and even though in, in the book of Revelation, Babylon is described in terms of a woman, we know now that what really is at play here, what it really means... What Babylon symbolizes is the world system of seduction that leads people away from God. It's, it's the allure of wealth and compromise. It's the temptation of sins of the flesh. It's the acceptance of smooth-talking, pretty-haired, but lie-telling false prophets and teachers. Babylon is the slippery slope of sinful rebellion. It represents all of those things that can lead us away from God. It represents anything that become, can become an idol for us and displace God from his rightful place on your heart's throne. 
and it has been an enormously successful weapon against God in the hands of the dragon, Satan. But there will come a time, as we've seen, when God finally says enough. This, this pull, this, this power, the, the reign of Babylon the prostitute will come to an end. We heard it clearly last week. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons. That's what we heard last week. And then we're told how everyone who has participated in the sinfulness and idolatry of Babylon would be destroyed. And that gives us a, ver- a variety of people, merchants, shipmasters, brides, grooms, kings, servants, those who refuse to obey God when they had the chance, they're going to face the wrath of this same almighty God who is just and true. And the last verse in chapter 18 explains that Babylon was punished, at least in part, for having persecuted and killed the prophets and the saints throughout the ages. Those who reject and rebel against God, those who have persecuted the faithful, will eventually be wiped off the earth, which is really just the start of their punishment. So that's the outcome for one of the two classes of people. Those who reject God are going to be destroyed and will face eternity of punishment and separation from God. Then we get to chapter 19, and the setting changes. We go from describing the outcome of the dwellers of the earth to now describing a scene in heaven. And we see this. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So it's interesting, I think, that, it, that John hears. I, I heard the emphasis on, on what he hears, what sounded like a great multitude in heaven. Now, perhaps you recognize that phrase, great multitude. We, we've run across it before. Back in chapter 7, John described seeing a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, all standing before the throne, all crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That was the first time we heard about a great multitude. Now here in 19, we, we run across the same words. John hears a great multitude in heaven. It seems highly likely, probable, that it's the same great multitude that's being described. But are there any hints or clues to help confirm this for us, make sure we're talking about the same group? I think there are. Chapter 7, where it first shows up, interestingly, comes right after chapter 6. Not yet. And chapter 6 ends with the description of the opening of the sixth seal. Now. And chapter 6 describes a great earthquake, The sun goes dark, uh, the moon becomes like blood, stars fall from the sky, the great kings of the earth and all the regular people of the earth, they all cried out to the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of God and from the wrath of the Lamb. Chapter 6 is a scene of judgment. What sounds like end times final kind of judgment? This is the outcome of the earth dwellers. Well, then that's followed by chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we switch from the outcome of the earth dwellers to the outcome for the redeemed. Chapter 7 talks about the 144,000. They represent the saints from all times throughout all ages. They've escaped God's wrath by by virtue of accepting Jesus' gift of salvation. They're gathered together singing praises and worshiping an almighty God, singing salvation belongs to our God. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power be to our God. This is a celebration of the redeemed. Those who have been saved 
from the destruction of the world. These are the perseverers, the conquerors. Well, now chapter 18 is not unlike chapter 6. It describes the end of Babylon. Chapter 18 describes the destruction of the wicked, the earth dwellers. So we get another depiction of the end times in chapter 18. Chapter 6 is perhaps more specific in its detail, earthquakes and stars falling. 18 is more general. We get words like destruction and plagues, and it was laid waste. But it's a similar tone. It's the same picture. Chapter 18 also mentions specific groups of people, like chapter 6 does. So the destruction of the sixth seal is followed by a scene in heaven. And the destruction in chapter 18 is followed by a scene in heaven. And both 7 and 19 use the phrase, great multitude in heaven. Now again, I think this confirms our approach that Revelation is not chronological storytelling. It's giving us different snapshots of these same scenes, different perspectives, different ways of seeing these same events. Here the great multitude is crying out, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. He's avenged the blood of the saints. We can't deny there are similarities between these two events, between these two scenes. The context surrounding them, the, the order of events leading up to them, the words that they cry out, salvation belongs to our God. But in chapter 19 here, the, the, the great multitude is depicted as not celebrating the defeat of the wicked and the rebellious. I mean, they are, but they're also responding to the final judgments against Babylon the prostitute. They're celebrating what now is the, the downfall of the entire system of evil. Not just those who bought into the system, not just the, the destruction of the earth dwellers, but they bought, they're now celebrating the whole end of Satan's reign on earth. And that's why their song is, Salvation is Here. It is now fully realized. The Lord's judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Now, we've heard about this over the last couple of weeks as well. We've heard about this idea of the great immorality. It's not just a reference to sexual immorality. That's kind of a, a, a blanket term throughout Scripture, meaning idolatry of any kind. It includes sexual immorality, which is idolatry. I think it's pretty clear that we're seeing now a, a, a generation that reveres and idolizes their sexuality above everything else. That's an idol. But this idea of, of immorality also includes the idolatry of wealth and, and, and power and greed and corruption. Anything that becomes an idol force, anything that causes people to turn away from Jesus, the, the kind of idolatry that the earth dwellers, the Jesus deniers, led them to actively punish and persecute believers. We don't want you people telling us how to live our life. These are the things we want to worship. So this great multitude, when they see the destruction of Babylon, they cry out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever. And this goes back again to what Randy covered last week. In chapter 18, verse 9, it says, The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. So again, we're seeing here two classes of people and two very different responses to the same events. Those who are in league with Babylon, those who are following idolatry, the, following Babylon, the great harlot, they're going to weep and wail over the demise of this system, while the redeemed, the great multitude, says, Hallelujah, finally an end to our persecution and suffering. 
Next verse. So the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So we're the same setting, same scene that we just discussed. John hears this great multitude, and now apparently he sees the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down and worship God. Again, this ought to sound familiar. We've seen a similar scene before back in chapter 5, which is the very beginning of the judgment cycle. It's before all of these series of judgments begins. Chapter 5 was John's initial vision of the throne room. In, in chapter 4, Jesus appeared and said to John, Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And immediately John was in the throne room. And then he goes on to describe the throne room. You remember he described it in, in terms of colors, the, the colors of, of precious stones. And he described the 24 elders seated around the throne. He described the four living creatures, one like a lion, one like an eagle, one like, a, like an ox, one like a man. And then, in chapter 5, the question is, who is worthy to open the scroll? And an angel says, it was the Lion of Judah. He's worthy. And in comes a lamb that had been slain. The lamb took the scroll, and the elders and the living creatures, in response to that, fell down before the lamb and they sang a new song. They sang, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's the first time we're told about the elders and the living creatures falling down. So here we are in chapter 19 now, which seems very much like the matching bookend for this period of judgment. They, they fell down and worshiped God before it started. Now they're falling down and worshiping him after this is concluded. After final judgment's been delivered, all the gathered saints, the, the perseverers, the overcomers, they all cry out, hallelujah. And again, hallelujah. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down, and they say, amen, hallelujah. That's it. Two words. They just said two words. But what a combination of words. Now, we tend to think of amen as something, you know, we're obligated to say at the end of a prayer. I mean, if you're praying in front of other people and you don't say amen, how will we know when you're done? You can't just leave it hanging there, right? It's like the period of an end of a, of a sentence. Is he going to say more? I don't, I don't know. Somebody say amen, quick. Thank you. But amen means so much more than, okay, this prayer is over. It means truth. It means verity. In John 3, and on several other occasions, when Jesus said, verily, verily, or truly, truly, that word is amen. Amen, I say to you. So what, he, what Jesus meant when he said amen was not just, hey, here's something. It was what I'm about to say to you is really, really, truly true. Pay attention. So when we add amen to the end of a thought or a prayer, it's like saying, yes, I agree with what has just been said. That was true, and I agree with it. What they just said, I believe this to be truth. 
So the great multitude says salvation belongs to our God, and then the, the great multitude lists God's attributes, and the elders and the creatures say, Amen. That's absolutely right. They nailed it. Everything they just said is absolutely true. God is just and true. Amen. And then after amen, they said simply, hallelujah. Which literally means praise the Lord. The hallel part means praise. The yah part is an abbreviation for Yahweh. It literally means praise the Lord. So the scene is this, this, this great multitude, all the, the generations of redeemed cry out salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His, just, his judgments are true and just. The elders and the creatures said, Amen. They're absolutely right. We, we believe that. We agree with that. And praise the Lord for all that he has done. And then following that came a voice from the throne. And we've pointed out several times throughout all this that whether it's actually the, the, the voice of God or, or a messenger or a spokesperson, it doesn't really matter. But when the text says it came from the throne, we are clearly meant to understand that what is being said is the will of God. And likely the voice of God. But the voice says, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Which seemed interesting to me that he, that voice reinforces what they're already doing. So what, why is that there? It seems it just seemed a little bit odd in, in the flow of the text here. We're told that the great multitude is already worshiping; they're already praising God. The elders and the creatures are already worshiping God. So why does God feel compelled to say, "Praise God"? I don't have a good answer for you. But I do have this, this question. I, I kind of wonder if this praise our God, you who fear him, small and great, I wonder if it has to do with maybe what's coming next in the text as opposed to what's come before. The idea here may be to, yes, we praise God, we, we worship God for all of these things, and there's more. But wait, there's more. And what comes next is a wedding. Praise God, all you who fear him, small and great, Yeah, there it is. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude again, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So this voice from the throne says, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then John heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. The same great multitude. Now, perhaps he could still not see the crowd at this point. We don't know. Maybe he's being supplied the audio and not the video. But he, he hears what seems to be the voice of a great multitude. It was loud. It, it, it was so boisterous, so loud, so cacophonous that it sounded like the roar of many, wa many waters. It sounded like the, like the sound of an enormous waterfall or waves crashing on a beach. Like the sound of not just thunder, but you know those big Midwestern storms that you get a thunder and it rattles the house and shakes the windows. John really, really wants us to understand that what he hears is extraordinarily loud. 
And the loudness is due to this great multitude and to their joy. They're crying out again, only this time the subject for the crying out is different. In verse 2, it was hallelujah, salvation belongs to our God. His, his judgments are true and just. He's avenged the blood of the saints. Here, the crying out is the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Meaning, the kingdom of the Lord is at hand. The suffering, the, the, the persecution, the weight, the heaviness of living in Babylon is over. The avenging of the blood of the saints is over. The, the future reward for past and present faith is at hand. Because now God Almighty reigns. So let's rejoice. Let's rejoice. Let's exalt. Let's give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Now, I think we all know that weddings are joyful. Many weddings are joyful. There are some weddings that are joyful. There are some that are less joyful than other weddings, but they're intended to be joyful. I don't think we can even imagine the joy of this particular wedding, where all wrongs have been made right. All evil has been vanquished. And the reward for a lifetime of perseverance and endurance is at hand. Amazing. So the, the, the timeline here is we've, we've just been told about the destruction of Babylon, the, the, the destruction of the harlot, and immediately we see the presentation of the bride. It's a clear contrast. It's a stark contrast. John doesn't give us a lot of more details until we get into chapter 21. So again, I don't think this is a chronological account of historical events. This is just the order in which John sees the visions. But even though we don't have a full, complete picture of, of a, the, the marriage or the wedding here, we're given enough information to piece together some info about the bride. She was clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. And fine linen, we're specifically told, is the righteous deeds of the saints. Again, this is a stark contrast with the harlot who was the source of all evil deeds and the bride who is clothed with righteous deeds. Two different classes. So this symbolic bride we know is the body of believers. It, it, it's the church. It's the great multitude made up of faithful followers, followers of Christ from throughout all the ages, those whose names have been recorded in the book of life, those who've lived faithfully, those who have persevered and endured and overcome. So the, the, the bride or the great multitude is, is the church of every believer throughout all time, all gathered together here, being presented. And they're decked out in fine linen. And this is interesting. If you think back to uh, way back when we went through the seven letters to the seven churches early in this book, each of those seven letters to the seven churches ended with promises that were made to the faithful. Promises that were made to the overcomers. If you persevere, if you endure, if you overcome, here's something you have to look forward to. And over the next few chapters, we'll see this more spelled out more, but we start to see here the fulfillment of those promises. Here's just a quick peek. Starting in chapter 2, verse 7, the overcomers will eat from the tree of life. They'll not be hurt by the second death. But in chapter 3, verse 5, the promise is, 
The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So all of these promises that were made to the faithful, to to the Christians of the first century churches and throughout the age, they're all going to find fulfillment in the eternal kingdom of Christ. Which is finally here in chapter 19. So that's why it says, So let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Well, then it says, the bride has made herself ready. And again, by ready, it means she's got proper clothing or attire. It's this fine linen that we've been told about, which means having done righteous deeds. But it also says that the fine linen was granted her to clothe herself. So there seems to be almost two different ideas here. One is that the bride has contributed to the celebration by being prepared, by having done righteous deeds. But the other idea is that God has granted or allowed or supplied the fine linen. God has given her the righteous deeds. It's interesting. I mean, the bride, which we know is the church, it's every believer from every age, the bride has made themselves ready for this day. I mean, that implies that we have a role to play. We have work we're called to do. We're to help prepare ourselves for the day. We've been called to actively participate in preparing ourselves for the marriage of the Lamb by doing righteous deeds. But it also says that that wardrobe, the fine linen, was granted to us. It was given to us. So is there a tension here between those two ideas? No, there's not. This is not an either-or situation. This is a both-and situation. Again, let's go back to the seven letters to the seven churches. Those seven letters were written to the body of believers currently existing in those cities. They were active churches. Some were faring better than others, spiritually speaking. But the audience was made up of Christ followers. These are people who'd committed their lives to following Jesus. They'd been saved. They, they had accepted the salvation offered through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet the message to them consistently was persevere, endure. Go back to the good works you used to do. Go back to the acts of love that you used to exhibit. Continue to walk in a worthy manner. They were believers. They were followers of Christ. They were working towards sanctification. They had a goal of holiness, but they, like us, fall short. But we're called to persevere. We're, we're, we're called to continue on the journey towards holiness by eliminating sin on one hand, but by working out our faith and increasing in righteous deeds on the other hand. So I think what this, what this tension, what this message shows us is, I think what John, or James rather, made more clear when he said, faith without works is dead. If we're truly being regenerated spiritually, it means, it will mean, it must mean, it has to work itself out in our daily lives. We will regularly display righteous deeds. We will display deeds that honor God. And those deeds are just outward acts that reflect our inward spiritual state. But the ability to work towards purity, the possibility of sanctification, is a gift from God. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. He will lead us into all truth. That's been granted to us. But it does require ongoing and continuing effort on our part. Namely, just obedience. We have to continue to be obedient. The long walk in the same direction. So the Lord, we're told, has done all the prep, has done all the planning for this great wedding, all the scheduling, 
He came up with the guest list. He set the day and the hour, which he's not telling us. He orchestrated the meeting of the bride and the groom. He's made our participation possible. He's even provided for us the bright and pure wardrobe that we need for the event. Our job is to hang on, hold on, persevere, keep working towards righteousness till the wedding day arrives. The deeds don't make us pure. The deeds just display our inward purity. We need to keep our clothes clean. And we work towards eliminating sin while increasing in righteous deeds. That's the goal we've been called to. I mean, it, that's the imagery of the wedding. In theological terms, it's God created us. He knew that we were going to give in to, to temptation and that we would sin against him. And, th and that would create this irreparable division between God and man. It's only irreparable from our perspective, from our side of things. God instituted a plan to repair the divide. The wages of our sin is death, so God sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place. Jesus' death was a substitute for ours. His death paid the penalty that we owe. And God orchestrated all of this on our behalf, all before he asked us to do anything. We then have to believe that Jesus' death was for us. We accept his death as payment for our sin. And then we're called and equipped to live a life of gratitude. Trying to live up to the standard of holiness that Jesus demonstrated for us, trying to persevere hardship, trying to endure trials, and try to make our way through this world system and overcome. And we do that through faith and trust in Christ. We fight for holiness and purity until the end. So the, the white garment is both a gift and a reward. That's what we saw in chapter 3. It's a both-and scenario. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is an interesting little tag on to this section of scripture. It almost, it almost kind of reads like a PS on a letter. Here's this really amazing stuff. Oh, and then here's this kind of little thing here. But I think it starts to become clear that John's pretty well overwhelmed at this point by all that he has seen. I mean, John has been shown essentially what is, how the world's going to end. He's been shown the destruction, the fall of Babylon. And then immediately he's shown this, this extraordinary worship scene directed towards the throne. The hallelujahs and the amen, a, a great cacophonous multitude of worshipers. There's, the, there's a scene from a wedding, this marriage supper that's about to take place. It's all emotional and stirring. And then the angel says, oh, and write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. So I think this kind of fills out the picture about God planning and orchestrating this wedding. God himself has authored the guest list. He was in charge of the invites. Blessed are those who are invited. Now, there's a whole other sermon series that could be taught on just this idea alone. 
But we know some of the scriptures that, that point to this. The, you know, the idea of the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, but many, most, reject him. So the, the wedding attenders, those who have their invitations, are those who have accepted the invitation and accepted Jesus as Savior. And I think it's really interesting that in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record Jesus' use of a wedding parable to help describe salvation. He knew that was the imagery that was going to be used. Way back in Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah describes how the Lord of hosts, it says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. Probably grape juice, right? Concord Sauvignon or something. He's going to prepare a feast of rich food and well-aged wine, and death would be swallowed up forever. I mean, that sounds like an end times kind of picture. And the picture was this grand feast. This was always part of the Lord's plan, as was the guest list. The word translated here as invited literally means called or chosen. That describes God's role in our salvation. Many are called, few are chosen. We see in 1 Peter 5.10, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now here's a little hint. I think we're probably going to move into studying 1 Peter next, after we finish Revelation. <clears throat> but this verse, I think, reinforces the idea of the the granting of the wardrobe imagery, the granting of the fine linen. God does the calling. He provides the means of our salvation, and we respond through faith and through our ongoing actions. The ongoing actions are a necessary component of our faith. It has to be. We are expected to fight for truth, to contend for righteousness, to work towards sanctification. And then here's the part that we find less attractive. Peter says this process of sanctification will involve suffering. We are called to experience it. We are called to endure it. And after we've suffered a little while, which seems like a long while sometimes, after we've suffered a little while, it says God himself will restore <clears throat> confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And why would that be necessary if it just doesn't beat us up along the way? Suffering is hard. There is a promise here of suffering, but there is a greater promise of hope. Our suffering is never anonymous or solitary. The enemy will tell us that it is. He will tell us that we're suffering alone. But we're never alone in our hardship if we're faithful followers of Christ. Our suffering, in whatever form it takes, is never without purpose. But the enemy will tell us the opposite. We will be told 
that little whisper in our ear and the back of our brain are those three o'clock in the morning waking up thoughts. No one cares about your suffering. No one cares about your loneliness. No one cares about you. You know what? God must be mad at you. You must have failed him in some way. You're being punished by God, or worse yet, he's ignoring you. And that is not scriptural thinking. That is demonic thinking. That's a lie from the devil who is seeking to devour and destroy us and attack us when we are weak. Here's the scriptural response. You're going to suffer a little while. But then Christ himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Persevere. Hang on. You will overcome it. And in spite of what the devil and his false teachers and the prosperity preachers proclaim, suffering for the cause of Christ is never pointless. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice. Those are all pretty uplifting, positive, encouraging words, right? Not only that, but we rejoice in our... Then it takes a turn. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. If you follow the map here, you see that suffering leads directly to hope. Hope in this life, hope surely in the life to come, hope in the glory of God. And that hope, which God has granted to us, compels us to live lives of character, lives of steadfastness, and not for our own sake, but for the cause of Christ. And someday, sooner for us than other generations, and someday, sooner or later, we're going to see how all of this plays out. We're going to be part of this great worshiping multitude. We'll be part of this symbolic bride, spotless and pure. So all of this, all of this that John has taken in is just so overwhelming. It's just, it's sensory overload, and his immediate reaction is to fall down at the feet of the angel to worship the angel. And the angel says, no, 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 no. Just have to say here that spell check is a wonderful thing, but when it misses a word, because I'm a bad typist, and it says, but the bagel said no, 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 it's an entirely different thing. The angel said, no, no, don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant like you. I, I'm just like you and your brothers. I, I, I'm another follower of Christ who believes in, who's trusted, who's committed to Jesus. The angel rightly and swiftly corrected John, don't worship me. And I kind of wonder if this, because this happens again later on, as we're going to see, I kind of wonder if this is maybe just a little warning for us to show us how quickly we can lapse into idolatry. How quickly we can be fooled. 
how quickly we can settle for something less. You know that, that old saying that, that good is the enemy of great? A lot of times we settle for good when we're just so close to great. The angel says, don't worship me. Hold that out for God. Hold that out for Jesus. John was emotional, and he was quick to worship an angel rather than the creator of the angel. We have to be ever vigilant in how we're living this life. So the angel warned them. The angel reminded them the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, this is a somewhat odd phrase. It's, it's a little bit difficult to pin down, I think. Um, but the phrase testimony of Jesus could be the testimony from Jesus. It might mean the testimony of Jesus or about Jesus. Either way, I think the outcome is similar. The message is Jesus. All biblical prophecy points to Jesus. From the prophets of old all the way through the Old Testament, they were telling the story of Jesus whether they knew it or not. They were pointing the way. The body of believers, the, the, the church which came after Jesus, their message, our message, message should be Jesus. It should be in, in, in the words from our lips and the work of our hands. Jesus should be the center of our heart. He should be the focus of our deeds. He should be the only king on the throne of our hearts. Anything else is idolatry and a problem. We are called to live out our faith in word and deed so that even unbelievers watching us, and people are always watching us, unbelievers will watch us and wonder, what is up with that guy? Why isn't he more stressed? Why isn't he using more colorful language? How does he seem so calm? There's something different about him. And then we're called to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Jesus is the reason. We want to make sure we're prepared for the wedding. Let's continue to endure and persevere and do our righteous deeds and search to see whether we're courting any idols in our own life. We all struggle with it. If you tell me you don't, I will call you a liar to your face. Or at least behind your back. <laughs> we all struggle with it. It should be a constant process of refining and searching for us. So we need to be prepared as we leave here and go out there, be prepared for what's coming. And it's been a couple of weird weeks and months. We've all dealt with weird stuff. We need to continue to be prepared. Let's pray.